On episode 316 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to develop a winning mentality with Coach Jack Shore. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the show. This is Mirban, and I hope you're doing well and improving your tennis game. I've been practicing a lot lately with my 5-0 men's team. We've got sectionals coming up in a few days from the date of when this recording will come out, so really excited about that. We'll be in the Richmond, Virginia area, specifically Ashland, playing there playing against a couple different teams. So the winner goes to Nationals, so we will see how it goes. But I have a great episode for you, uh, in my humble opinion. This one is with Coach Jack Shore, who it was very cool that podcast guest Marco Ampedulia uh, on episode 311 of the show, he had introduced me to Jack at the City Open. And so we chatted and figured that Jack would make a great guest. Jack has a very storied tennis background. He has coached five players ranked in the, in the top 50 in the world, including Grand Slam champions and doubles. Jack was in, inducted into the Mid-Atlantic Tennis Hall of Fame in 2000. He was also named the Washington Post Coach of the Year and Washingtonian Magazine Pro of the Year, as well as being a three-time winner of the Montgomery County Tennis Association Tennis Coach of the Year. I'm actually uh, on the MCTA board, which is a great place to be serving the tennis community for sure, trying to bring a lot of individuals into our leagues. But in addition, Jack uh, has coached and mentored thousands of young people in the Mid-Atlantic region over the last 30 years. He impressively as the president of the Urban Leadership Development Group, and he is the president and founder at Jack Shore Tennis, as well as the CEO of Montgomery Tennisplex. Um, but yes, on this episode, we talk about the top traits among the best players that Jack has coached and the key differences between the different levels of the game. Also, some really great tips on uh, how club-level tennis players can improve their games and reach the next level. Also, some great information about setting and achieving goals and much more. So uh, with that, I really hope that you enjoy this discussion with Jack. And without further ado, here is my interview with Coach Jack Shore. Hey everyone, welcome to this special episode of the podcast I have with me, legendary coach Jack Shore. Uh, Jack, so great to see you on here. It was really nice meeting you at the City Open recently. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I, I, it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. Uh, honor is mine. Uh, really excited to talk to you. I mean, you have so many great accomplishments, as uh, you know. I read off in the interview earlier. So, did read something interesting about you, and I think we might have talked about this at City Open. You have several horses. Uh, that sounds like a lot of work. Well, not really. We have uh, people who take care of our horses, actually. 
but yeah, we were, we did Fox hunt. Uh, I moved down to a place called Rappahannock County many years ago. And my wife is a big Fox hunter. So naturally I had to join along. So, and I love the horses, just love them. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I've always been a little bit hesitant to, to ride them for fear of falling off, but I'm, I'm sure it would probably be fine. But I fear it most of the time. I have a thoroughbred who's just can really go. And, uh, he takes care of me. Nice, nice, nice. That's good. You have that nice bond going there. So Jack, um, you know, and again, in talking to you, you've just produced so many winners, um, whether it be, you know, juniors, um, pro level, uh, collegiate, you know, teams, individuals and whatnot. So probably a tough question, maybe not for you, but what does it mean to be a winner? Well, well, in tennis or sport, it's a very definitive thing. You either win the championship or you don't. You either come in second or you win the thing or you come in last. It's it, it, it's all spelled out. In life, it's a whole different ballgame. Uh, but I guess you're talking about tennis. Uh, for me, it was like I, I enjoyed winning with teams. I enjoyed winning with individuals. I, I enjoyed the difference in coaching those different uh, situations. And things seem to have worked out. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we won at a great level when I was at, uh, at University of Maryland. I coached one year. We won uh, more matches at a bigger high percentage than any team ever had. When I was at Bullis School, we won more IAC championships. And we actually won the uh, national championship twice. And I croaked the Greek Junior Davis Cup team. It was the best year they ever had. So, and it, it just seemed to have worked out. What was the key to turning around the uh, University of Maryland program? Because obviously they've <laughs> they sustained a lot of losses. And yeah, what did you do? What was it recruiting? Was it, you know, mentality? What was it? Well, it was an interesting situation because I just came in there for one year. Actually, the coach had to leave and she asked me, kind of begged me, please take over the team. And I was, she was such a wonderful person. I, I, I did it. Um, and when I inherited the team, I think they had five wins that year. And in the first practice, I had brought in two of my players and gave them scholarships to Maryland. And they were used to my style of coaching. And everybody else was pretty much a senior. So I had these two freshmen, the rest were seniors. They all weighed, I'd say, a minimum of 30 pounds overweight. Mm. When I first walked on the court and the team came out, I was stunned. And after the first practice, there's a if, at the University of Maryland, the track, is right down below the tennis courts. And I said, okay, everybody run four miles. And they're packing their bags and they're laughing and having a good time and they're walking off. And, and I said, oh, no, I, one, run four miles. We're going to do this every day. And the two players that I had walked up to the other players and they said, no, he's not kidding. Trust me, he's not kidding. And that day on, we ran four miles every single day until – you know, matches started, and I had to get them in their playing condition. And they dropped the weight, and they were actually very good players. But they were tremendously out of condition. And we went on to to win. Just a, a side story, in the middle of the season, I get a call from the athletic director. She calls me, and there's two of my players. And she said, they're complaining that you're working them too hard. And I said, you know, Girls, I'm not going to stop doing this. This is who I am. And let me ask you, are you winning? Yeah. Are you having a good time winning? Yeah. And that's it, girls. That's the way it goes. That's what we're doing. 
Mm. We, we went on from there. Wow. Well, yeah, you really found the, the issue and, and tackled it head on um, and, and convinced so the players what they needed. I, 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 I would have had to leave to say, yes, we do. It was stop. Stop the practice yeah. is where I wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, big respect for that. So you've coached a lot, of, a lot of great players. What are the top three common traits among your top players? Would you say? You know, I wrote down and when I gave you the list of, uh, of common traits, and I gave it to two of my great players, guys who were one guy, Richie Randenberg, who was a two-time Grand Slam doubles champion, Dan Goldie, who got to the quarters of Wimbledon, and they both said the same thing: the number one trait, if you can't get past that then you should just forget about it. And the number one trait is coming – and this is just observation of mine. It's not uh, a, a rote thing that you just read in, in most of these journals. Uh, great players come to practice early. They leave late, and they get as much as they can near 100% out of every practice. That's what they do. If you can't do that, then you can be very good. But you can't be great. And it's not a lot. Just because you do that doesn't mean you're going to be great. But you must do that to buy into the rest of it. I, I, you know, I, I was wondering why Nadal and Djokovic and Federer, why did they dominate for so long? And clearly out there are great athletes, as good as them, and great strokers of the ball, who, who many of them hit harder than they do. But what I found was those three people making on-court decisions better than anybody else. They could change their game. They can vary their style. They can do it, and they, and they would make the decision. Then they will follow it by doing it. And it would be the difference in winning and losing. It, it's a hair. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's not that much in many of those matches, but they were making the correct decisions all the time. So I thought that was one of the great things. Uh, there, are, there are several other things, but... I think one of them is having a goal. And you see this so many times. You put that goal out there, and that's your goal. And you, whatever happens in between when you start to your finish, you, it's, you're working your way to your goal. Whether you win every match for five matches in a row and you lose one, or you lose five matches in a row and you win one, it doesn't really matter because you're looking at that goal, and that's where you're going. And I, I think all of these people, all great champions, do that. So some follow-ups, Jack. First off, um, you mentioned getting 100% out of practice. So how do you actually do that? Um, I, I think it's sort of built into you. I, I, you know, becoming a champion, is, sometimes it's just in the genes. And I, th I think it's sort of where you, you look around and you see the champions next to you practicing and you, you go, okay, that's what I have to do. But it, it's a mindset. And I see what, what coming early and leaving late to me represents is that you really want to be there. Um, that's, you know, that's your situation for the day. I had a great player. His name was Jeff Hirsch, who played four years at number one at Duke, one of the top five players in the nation in, in, in the uh, juniors. And he once said to me, you know, I walk in to practice and I want to get the absolute most out of practice. When I walk out of practice, I want to get the absolute most out of my my studies and my you know, and he would just balance both of them. But whatever he did, he wanted to get the most out of. It. And I think that's many times innate. 
But what I also enjoyed was I would, I would bring my great players back to my junior practices. And they would practice alongside the juniors. And so many of the juniors told me, okay, I get it now. I see what I have to do. Because these guys were you know, their example. So, Jack, in terms of um, you know the difference between coaching individuals and teams, I, w- I wanted to ask you kind of a similar t- sort of question uh, for teams. So, what are a few keys to develop uh, a winning team? Well, the first thing I ever do with every team I ever have, I bring them all together, and I said, "Okay, nobody's going to agree with me except one person, and that's the guy playing number one." I would hope everybody here feels that they could play one. Or if they're playing three, that they could play two, or they should be moving up. However, the, when we set the lineup, you're going to have an ample chance to prove yourself. We'll have a lot of uh, back and forth as far as you, you can challenge anybody. And after a period of time, we're setting the lineup. But everybody here will disagree with me. I understand that now. Let's go forward on it. And it's, it's really uh, an eye-opener for everybody. Because all the moaning and bitching and stuff like that, you always get on teams, and I like that. Uh, it's taken care of right away. And then there's the building of camaraderie between the players. And you want to do things off the court and on the court that build that kind of community. And once you can achieve a community, you really are going to pull more out of these people than they ever thought they were going to be able to do individually. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess an easy follow up for me at least is going to be, um, you know, how do you, how do you build that community? Cause I remember, you know, when I played in, in college, uh, UMBC, you know, obviously sometimes it may be a little bit tense in terms of, you know, you had the challenge matches, somebody thought they should be playing, but they weren't. So what are the keys to developing that community? Well, that challenge matches thing I, I set up, I, I let them know, let's say we're going to have two matches a week, two days out of those other three days of practice or four days of practice, we'll have challenge matches. So you can go at each other. But you have to accept the fact that what is is once we start to play another team. Because the next day, you can challenge again. And it was an interesting thing, particularly with the team at Maryland. They thought that the challenge matches were much tougher than the actual matches they played because they so wanted to be in a better position. So it was kind of a relief to play another team. And then we would grab pizza, we'd have, or we'd go on the road. And, you know, you use those times to try to build community. You use those times to try and, uh, okay, so you're the number one player, but there are other players who are, you know, uh, excel at other things. And we talk about a lot of different situations, a lot of other facets of life, and try and get everybody involved in it. So it wasn't just who you are uh, in the lineup that determined your seniority. It was, you were accepted as a human being. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of great keys there in terms of, um, you know, club level players. I was wondering, cause I know we, one other thing in there. Oh yeah. Go ahead. I would let everybody know that's the culmination of at the end of the day of how many points we've won. We don't get any more points for winning number one than we do for winning number six. So everybody here, should be pulling for everybody else because everybody is of value. The number three right. double team will eventually win a match for us. Everybody here, look around, the, look around the room, and somebody here every single time is going to be on the line winning a match for us, and it's not going to be the number one player. 
it's going to be every one of you who will be on the line. So we all have to back each other. Yeah, that's important. And then in terms of the the bench players, how do you kind of build value for or show them their worth? Is it more like, you know, you're you're practicing and helping the players improve around them? Well, you're doing that and you also have a chance to play. And I try and give our bench players, if we're playing someone who we know we're going to beat pre-handling, I try and get them in the matches. So they can really feel match tough. They can really feel match situations. So when they're not playing against, you know, some of our arch rivals, they know what the other players are feeling. And they know to get behind them because they, they liked it when the other players got behind them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely, uh, Jack. So um, so in terms of club-level players at, like, the 3-5 to 5-0 level, uh, I know we were chatting about this a bit when we were at City Open. So I'm curious, like, what what things did you observe? What stood out to you the most that you thought players, if they had just spent some time improving, that they would really be able to leapfrog a level or two? Yeah, it's interesting that you you, know, you talk about that because I was driving past a municipal tennis stadium the other day. There were about a dozen courts, and I was looking out. And I would think very easily a 3-5 or 4-0 player could improve some of their techniques and they would enjoy the game so much more. They would be a whole different level, uh, serving, ground stroke techniques, maybe a little foot techniques, and just invest in that a little at a time. And it would be a vast improvement. You'd feel a whole different uh, accomplishment in the game. And your level would go up dramatically. And I've been able to do that with some people. Whereas if they came to me, Three five player, and we just did a couple of things over the course of a month, and it was just then they were out on their own, and they felt a whole different. It was a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm curious. Maybe what are maybe one or two of these particular things? I mean, I'm, maybe I'm going to guess it's a serve. I don't know, but like what what's maybe like a change or two that you changed, and uh, you know, how do you do that? You can teach someone of that level a better serve very easily. And then you can also very easily teach them shot selection and where to be at a certain time. One of the great things is return to serve. You see, most 3-5 players will stay in the exact same position every single time to return. You know, the easiest way to get into a point is by through someone's second serve. Because at the 3-5 level, once you see their second serve, that's when it's going to be the whole match. So that's the easiest ball to time. And you don't want to stand five feet behind the baseline because mm. most three five don't have a dominating second serve. So you get on the baseline or inside it and you start to time it. And you, then you immediately get on the offense and you're putting pressure on that person and the whole game changes. It, it does in the pros also. You see it in the pros all the time. But it's easy in a three to five, four out. Easy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. And and in terms of the mentality, because that's like a huge thing. We often get ourselves into these like third set uh, super tiebreakers and whatnot. And wondering what sort of advice you have for players on how to, you know, put themselves in the best position to succeed. You know, any common pitfalls and what to do about them, etc. Yeah, I, you know, I think that once again, it's shot selection. And I think that one of the great things that's set up in the t- game of tennis is to close. And the pressure that you have to close. The way I talk to a, a, 
with my top players, it's like a bullfight. You have to kill the ball. You can't, you know, mm. there's no clock. You know, you can't run out the clock and you can't build up a, a certain amount of points. So at the end, you, you know, you, you can't be caught up to. In tennis, you have to the last. So there are various styles of games that each player has. And they know their strengths. And in, that, in those situations, you want to go to your strengths and you want to have very good shot selection. You want to know when to use your strengths, what are your strengths. If your strength is to keep the ball in play, okay? If your strength is that you are in great shape, use that. If your strength is your forehand, run around your backhand, okay? Um, show different positions on return of serve so that you haven't done before. Pull something unique out of the hat that the player hasn't seen before. That, but that you know you can do. Don't don't do things that you aren't sure you can do. Go to the well and do to your strengths and maybe do something unique to to show the other player. So they have to think a little bit. And then you generally come out okay. Gotcha, Jack. In terms of the, uh, just coming back to the serve, because I, I think about, you know, one of the biggest uh, things in my game that I'm trying to work on. What do you think are maybe the, the one or two biggest issues that you've seen uh, with players' serves that you've had to fix? Well, I think most people think about hitting the ball. And what I what I like to do with people, if I, if I was working with you on your serve, you know, the first thing I would do is I get a basket of balls and I said, okay, throw 10 balls over the net. I would want you to realize that the serve is a throwing motion. Okay? It's like a quarterback throwing a football. It's like a baseball pitcher throwing a baseball. What you're doing is you're taking the racket, you're tossing that ball, and you're throwing the racket in a throwing motion at that ball. So, kinesthetically, what you want to do is you want to rotate into the ball with the center of your body. You don't want to hit the ball with your arm. I think most, most three fives, four o's hit the ball. They don't rotate into it. And you want to get that across. Once you do that, you liberate so much of the service motion. <clears throat> and you build up a, a lot of confidence uh, in, in, that, in that player. Also, okay, the, where do you want to put the ball? It's pretty easy to put the ball wherever you want. If you get, well, no, let's go back a second. The other thing you want to work on is your toss. So you, you, you work with a person on showing them how to toss from the shoulder, keeping everything else straight, getting it you know, maybe six inches out in front, and then just rotate into it and let your hips and shoulders go exactly where you want that ball to go. And it'll go there. It's, yeah. not that, it's really not that tough. Yeah, just more of, um, yeah, when you've built all this muscle memory for years, it can be tough, but um, just takes a lot of dedication to... It is, but once you get somebody throwing, and I've done mm -hmm. this with a lot of a lot of older players, it's three five. Once you get someone throwing and they feel it, then they really understand what they should be doing as far as the service motion, not hitting it but rotating into it. And uh, yeah. and this this because if you hit the ball, usually you're going to pull down. You know what I hate to hear, and I hear so much from even on television. He's got. You know, keep your chin up or you, you pull your shoulders down. Well, the reason you do that is because you didn't rotate your, your hips through. If you come from your upper body, you'll pull down naturally. You can't stop mm. it. The only way you can stop it is by rotating through. So once mm. you get someone to do that, okay, then you say, okay, every time you hit the ball, serve into the net, you know exactly what happened. You didn't rotate your hip. 
So my goal for you is to never hit the ball, serve the net twice in a row. Never do that mm. because you know how to fix it now. You've given, you, you have all the information on how to fix it. And most people do that. Great mm. mm. subject. In terms of, um, what, what's that? Take it out and we'll give it a try. Oh, yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I need it. And in terms of um, college versus pro level, Jack, I mean, you've obviously coached big levels and every level. What do you think are the biggest differentiators you know, between college game and pro game? Yeah. The professional coaches really have to know the ins and outs of their player, mm-hmm. what they can do, what they can't do. Um, you're kind of limited. Other than a junior coach, you're kind of limited because you can't change that player drastically over. You can over a period of time, but you can't change something because the player has to win. But in, in, in professional tennis, the player always feels they have to win. And they, they can't go through a period of, okay, I'm going to try this and, and we're going to modify my game. We're going to change this here and there. You have to do it within them still winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, 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 it's a very delicate situation in the professional ranks. And then the, then the pro coach has to know players that they're playing against and be able to evaluate that. So it's a whole different thing. It's a whole, it, it's much more of a tennis thing in, in coaching professionals than it is in coaching collegiate players. Collegiate players, if you can recruit, you get great players, mm-hmm. you can do okay. Now you can enhance those players and you can do really well and win a national championship, but you're going to do okay if you have, just you know, a good bunch of players. Yeah, definitely. Junior Jack, coaches it, are a whole different thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because you mm-hmm. can really mold a player. I mean, I, I think I could take almost anybody, a kid, and make him into a player. I'm not talking, I'm not talking about a great player, but a high school player, a collegiate player. I, I think I can do that with almost anybody. Yeah, I definitely believe it. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just kind of going back to the the whole, you know, the goals, setting goals, achieving goals. Um, I'm curious what types of goals you encourage uh, your players to set, because obviously there's talk about, you know, okay, how far out should we set goals and um, what types, you know, should they involve numbers, rankings, things like that. So um, what do you suggest like when we're setting our goals in terms of those parameters? Well, I, I always want them to set high goals. I mean, I, you know, it, it's interesting because, I, you know, I've coached people who got in the quarterfinals and singles in Wimbledon, and I've coached guys who won Grand Slams, so I, I know it's doable. And when I get a, a young kid, I'm coaching a nine-year-old boy now. And I actually say to him, okay, when, you know, when you're at Wimbledon, you got to make sure I'm in that, that, that box. And he looks at me, and I said, look, somebody has to do it. You can be that somebody. So it's a it's plausible. It, it's a feasible thing for you to be able to get to Wimbledon. You know, I've I, you know, I've coached guys. Here, call this fellow up. He's been playing at Wimbledon. He played Wimbledon six years. Call him up and talk to him. Someone has to do it. Why not you? 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, just to be devil's advocate, uh, just, you know, random thoughts here. Is there any, would it ever be a detriment to any, to any sorts of people to set like too high of a goal? You know what I mean? Like, is it maybe somehow like, okay, oh, if they set too high of a goal, they'll get, feel too much pressure or something like that. So they should set, you yeah, know, I, like yeah. medium. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think what I never understood when like a number four player at a, at a middle school, collegiate school turn pro now if you mm. wanted to go for a year and have a good time i, I you know travel and i understood that but what you need to take a look at is what level are you dominating if you're dominating a certain level okay let's let's set the goal for the next level okay but you need to dominate your level mm-hmm. otherwise you're kidding yourself i mean it's just not it's not realistic so and that's in any phase of life you need to, you need to be able to dominate that level. Um, mm-hmm. If you're not in the Middle Atlantic, if you're not in the top ten in the Middle Atlantic, you, you, you know your your goal should not be to be in the top ten in the nation. You know, okay, maybe I should be top fifty in the nation. That's a good goal. Okay, you get to be mm-hmm. top fifty in the nation. Okay, then you can set your goals a little higher, a little higher. Um, although we, you know, with all my players, we never put a number on anything, even in the professional ranks. We always try to achieve the next thing you needed to get to grow your game. Never like never. Okay, I'm 50 in the world now. Um, by six months, I want to be 23 in the world. That was we never did that. Mm. Okay, what do I need to get better? Mm. And I think that is much more of a plausible goal. It's much more something you can really do. And in that doing, you're gonna you're gonna be a better player, and your ranking should rise, and you should be. You know, you should be moving along. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, great stuff. Um, obviously, I want to touch upon you know a lot of your accomplishments as well, Jack, in terms of uh, you know building uh, building up facilities around the area. So I guess maybe let's even start earlier than that. I'm curious, when did you first actually get into tennis? Like, how did that uh, all come about? It's, it's, I, I think so many things in, in life are luck. So I played on my high school team, and we were, we were good, but I didn't know how good we were. And I went to my first year in college at Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington, Illinois, and the, my dorm was directly across the street from the tennis courts. So I always loved the game, so I went over to the wall every couple of days, and I hit on the wall there. And one day, uh, I'm hitting on the wall, and it, this is how vivid it is. Don Guess shows up. He's the number one player on the, on the team at Wesley, and I hadn't tried out. And he was the president of the fraternity I was rushing. So Don and I knew each other. And I'm hitting, and his, luckily, his guy he was going to hit with didn't show up. Jack, you want to mm-hmm. hit? Right, going to hit with Don Guess. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, Don was 6'4", you know, look like a real tennis player. So we're hitting, and it's going pretty good. Hey, Jack, you want to play a set? Wow. I'm going to play a set with Don Guess. It gets to four all in the first, and he has to go to a fraternity meeting. He said, why didn't you go out for the team? I said, I just never dreamed, you know, I'm going to make the team. But the next year I went out for the team, and I I made the team, and I transferred to GW, and I made the team there. And it just kept on going. And once again, it was just straight luck. I was was at a... uh, I was taking a vacation in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
and I walked past the Caribe Hilton, the tennis courts there, and there was a chain link fence between there, there and you know the courts and where we were walking through. And I, I'm watching this guy teach out of the corner of my eye, and I said, Jesus, guy's really good. And for the next three days, <laughs> my wife didn't love it, I guess, but I, I would show up and I'd stand behind the chain link fence and I'd watch him teach. And I adapted all his methods. And I didn't know it was Willoughby Van Horn, who probably is the father of the great coaches of today. And uh, I just, you know, glommed onto his methods. And it worked, you know, and I put my own personality into it as we went along. So I would say it was 75% well-being, 25% me. And, yeah, just, just by luck. And the guy was a great coach. And, you know, my players really benefited from it. That's, that's super cool. And then, obviously, you, you built up uh, Bullis, which is, uh, you know, one of the most well-known facilities around the Mid-Atlantic area, if not, you know, nationwide. So I, t- tell us about how you developed Bullis. Yeah, it's, well, to me, I think of myself as, as a coach, not an entrepreneur. So what I always wanted to do was leave all the business situations to somebody else. So I figured if I build a facility and I hire a great manager, which I did in Vicky that well, uh, then I would be free to do anything I wanted on the court. I could travel with my players. I could be on the court, period. And uh, for 20 years or more, I would spend a minimum of 50 hours on the court. But I didn't have to worry about the business side of it because Vicky was you know, a great manager. She took care of everything. I just showed up. And could do whatever I wanted with my players. So the same thing at Montgomery Tennis Plex, where I've got, I got Marco and Padage there, who's a you know, fabulous manager, and uh, I can just do whatever. So I, that really liberated me to do my coaching. I could travel on the pro tour. I could travel with my juniors. I could be there seven days a week, and I can get a court whenever I wanted with a player needed it because I owned the place. So it was it was just a, a, a great situation. And it worked out. Yeah, now that's awesome. And then something that's super cool uh, that you're very proud of is, you know, the Urban Leadership Development Group um, yeah. that, that you're <laughs> president of. So uh, uh, tell us about that. Well, once again, I just, it was luck. I was at a meeting and one of my great friends, Kevin Dowdell, worked for Arthur Ashe. He was his, uh, oh, his finance finance uh, person. And we had a meeting with the headmaster of Bullis and Arthur and Kevin and myself. And before anybody else got there, Arthur and I were sitting around and we're talking. He was such a great guy. He would, you know, he was just, he wanted to know about you. So I said, well, Arthur, I grew up in the Bronx, um, but I, I own this tennis center now at Bullis. And I really want to do something for inner city kids because, you know, I grew up in the inner city. And he helped me develop this urban leadership development group. And what we did was uh, we took kids from the inner city who were, didn't necessarily have to be great players. They, they were good players, but they also had uh, uh, high academic values. And they were good citizens. And they were willing to travel. You think about this. Uh, from the inner city out to Potomac, Maryland. 
every single day back and forth, which was an hour and a half each way, and stay with it. And we we got these player after player after player who saw the value in it, whose parents saw the value in it. And they would come to, to school, and at the end of their year, at the end of <coughs> when they finished Bullers, they all got full scholarships. <coughs> the last one, last fellow, Ronald yeah. Camden got a full scholarship, got admitted to. So it, it, it was really a, uh, a wonderful experience for everybody. I loved it because I was, you know, fulfilling, I felt uh, a need. And the, the one thing when they graduated, that I demanded from them. It was very, I say demand. Uh, I asked them to do it. Everybody, of course, did it. But okay, look at the, the chance you got. Your job is when you get situated and you're comfortable in your life to give back. Mm-hmm. And they all have. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's got to be thing, incredible. It never came out of my, you know, my, my uh, professional career. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be... Uh unbelievably fulfilling so just huge kudos to you uh and everybody who involved with that so and your students as well uh, obviously a question for coaches so dick gould all-time best coach at stanford university uh, very well known he said jack is probably one of the two or three best coaches in the country so i just want to ask you uh jack what 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 makes a great coach um for all those coaches listening well i think the first thing that you have to have in your mind is the player comes first. Mm. Your ego has got to be sublimated to the player. And whatever they need, whatever you feel they need, they come first. And I, I see that in all the great coaches. And I, I, I feel, I, I hate to say this, I, there's so many coaches who like, you know, pound their chest and all the things that they've done. And it's the player that comes first by far. And then you need to be, able to get learn how to get the trust of a player that's you, you can't do anything unless you your player trusts you and then you need to have the goods you need to be able to know the game know the techniques know the shot selections know what your player can do and can't do uh be you know and that's that's a big thing because every player is different so th- those are the things i think if you can do that you're, you're going to be a very good coach and so yes yeah, some follow-ups i mean how does or how do you make the player trust you? What sorts of things um, should coaches do to to um, foster that? You never tell them anything but the truth. Mm. You know, everybody who's, you know comes up to them. And I, I tell them this right away. I just had a conversation with my nine-year-old kid who's getting pretty good and his father. So now that you're getting good, everybody's going to come up to you. They're going to tell you to do this, to do that. You really need to do this. You're going to try this and that. Um, come back to me. Tell me what they've said. I don't know everything. Maybe they're right. Okay, we'll put it in, or maybe you know, talk to them about what they were talking about. We'll get together. But you you need to let that person know you're open to them, your, your player. You need to listen to them. You need to take suggestions from them. You need to show them. Okay, here's why I'm working with you on this forehand. I'm going to tell you exactly why. Ask me any question you want about it, okay? And maybe if it's not right for you, we'll talk about it. And okay, we'll change it. We'll fix what I'm doing. But let's talk about it. Let's see why this is happening. Never, ever 
accept from me anything rote. Don't, I will never tell you anything. Do this. We'll always go over it. We'll discuss it. I want you to understand mm -hmm. why I'm telling you that. And don't think you have to do it. If it doesn't make sense to you right now, we'll do something else. Nice. Love it. And then the other thing you, you mentioned, right. <laughs> <laughs> you better be right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then in terms of, um, you know, you mentioned uh, making the player come first. So I'm curious if you yeah, any advice on that or any examples of, yeah, how to how to exactly do that. I, I know probably that, you know, the trust thing obviously. Well, making comes a player, into it, I'm but, sorry. Uh, well, you, you know, if the player is going to be really good, it's an individual game and they better have a pretty big ego, at least on the court. You know, off the court, I don't mind it either, but, but uh, you know, they better have a pretty big ego. And you can't put your ego ahead of them. You've got to let them know that they are your main focus. And, you know, that's, you're not going to, you know, tell them what to do. It's a, you know, a situation where we're both going to get together. Sometimes you can't. And then you have to know to walk away from it. And come back another time to try and gain the confidence. Okay, they're not accepting what you're what you're saying. Okay, don't force feed them. Don't push it on. Walk back. And at some point, either they come to you and go, "Yeah, I, I see what you're saying," or you wait for that special time that you see. Okay, I can I can talk to this player. There's a vulnerability there, or there's a situation that's happening that you can talk to them now. And that you have to be patient as a coach to get to those situations. Yeah, definitely, definitely, Jack. So this might be a tough one, but I guess in all all your years of coaching, I'm curious, what is one piece of advice that stands out to you about tennis? It could be about the game for amateurs. It could be about coaching, anything. Just one piece of advice that, you know, you carry with you pretty much every day that, that you know, comes to mind that you've received from, from anybody. One piece, huh? Yeah, um, or, you know. You mentioned Dick Poole. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Dick Gould and his record. If you, viewers want to really see a record, I mean, this this man was the ultimate winner in tennis, and his whole feeling was to be positive. A hundred percent of the, no, I'd say ninety five percent of the time, be positive with your players, and they'll respond uh, to you in in a very very warm and understanding way, and he was incredible that way. And he told me, uh, you know, a lot of lessons of how to you know, deal with people and how to be extremely uh, open with people, but but be positive and pick out the the best things about them before you work and criticize anything about anybody. And you don't really criticize, but tell them the good things that they're doing, and then you can open them up to taking advice but I, I think dick was really just incredible like that yeah yeah legendary coach thanks for great advice Sarah, jack so just want to let the viewers know about you know what, what you're up to right now any you know any ways that they could connect with either what you, what you what you're doing or um your businesses are doing or anything of facilities whatever so any particular contact methods or anything that you, or social, you know, social media page. I don't know if you have, have those as well, but anything you want them to check out. Well, I the, the website's the big thing of uh, Montgomery tennis um, mm -hmm. We, we are now currently, I think one of the biggest junior facilities in the nation. We, we coach 700 kids a week. 
we we have great adult programs also. And sincerely, our coaching staff is one of the has to be one of the top four or five coaching staffs in the United States um, as far as knowledge, caring, anything you want to think about. We have we have tremendous coaches from both juniors and adults. So I I I I'm very pleased with how we're coming along. I'm very pleased with uh, what you know what we we can achieve, and I, and the feedback that we get is just wonderful. So it's MontgomeryTennisPlex.com. We have twelve indoor courts. We have four outdoor courts, uh, and we you know, and we have uh, I think six you know six pickleball courts. Well, actually ten pickleball courts, which is a whole different area that we got into. It's, it's just it's a, it's a beautiful place. So come out and visit us. To have you. Cool, cool. Yeah, I've, I've been there. I've enjoyed it. Very nice facility. Um, hopefully, I'll be back there soon. Uh, maybe to get those tenant those uh, serve lessons you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, one final question that I love to ask my um, interviewees before we sign off is, um, and you've given us a lot of great, uh, you know, tips and pieces of advice, obviously. But what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? Um, I, I would say just enjoy it. Okay, mm-hmm. enjoy it and 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 watch the professionals play. And then you're not going to play like the professionals. I mean, they're just physically uh, incredible. You can always find. And let me just preface it: I never watch a tennis match ever. Well, I don't learn something, See, and I love it, and I watch it, and I. I, you know, I listened to some of the commentators, uh, uh, Courier and Paul Hanico and a couple of the other guys who I think are just great, Brent Gilbert. Yeah. And you learn so much by just watching and listening that you, you, know, you never thought about before. I mean, I listened to some of these guys and, you know, and I, I'm sitting there, Hugh Rennenberg and I was two grand with uh, watching uh, a televised event. And Courier said something, and Richie and I just look at each other and go, huh, never thought of that. Mm. And so I, I, that's would be my advice. If you really want to be uh, a player and really immerse yourself into it, it's fun. And you can pick out things visually, and you can pick out things audibly, uh, and, and just play around with them. Yeah, yeah. De- definitely, definitely great advice there uh, to cap it off. So we will have the uh, Montgomery Tennis Plex um, uh, website in the show notes page. So you can click that and check it out. Definitely uh, want to do that. So Jack, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I uh, hope to see you again soon uh, at Plex probably. And uh, yeah, yeah, we'll talk soon, but thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with coach Jack Shore. Jack, thanks for coming on to the show today. And if you found value from this episode, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or leaving a review on your favorite podcast app that you use to listen to the show. We just find that Apple Podcasts is the biggest driver of viewership for the show and um, you know makes it the most visible and so forth. So yeah, would really appreciate a review for the show if you have not done that yet. I would also like to leave a, a you with a quote as I do at the end of every show, and this one is by Peter Drucker. And Peter said, We now accept the fact that learning is a lifelong process of keeping abreast of change. 
and the most pressing task is to teach people how to learn. I love that quote there by Peter. And with that, thanks so much for listening. We've got some great interviews for you coming down the pike, so definitely stay tuned for that. And with that, thank you so much for listening. Keep improving your tennis game, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is your host, Mirban Aranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.